Okay, well, as many of you know, uh, we are making our way through our study in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, and we finished the second chapter last week, uh, but I mentioned to you that I wanted to come back and consider Paul's statement that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And so we're going to do that today. And in doing that, we're going to really be talking about uh, the supremacy of the scripture. We're going to talk about the inspiration of the Bible and the uh, inerrancy of the scripture and the authority of the word. And, uh, you know, as, as we were teaching through the section a few weeks ago, it just sort of one of those moments where the Lord just flashed on me uh, to come back to this passage here and to do this because uh, we're living in a time when probably like uh, no other time the Bible is under attack uh, from the philosophers and from the, uh, to some extent, the scientific community, the intellectuals in our culture, uh, people are constantly attacking the word and questioning uh, the veracity of it and uh, challenging as to whether we could actually you know, believe it to be the word of God. So it's important that we ourselves have confidence in the scriptures and the Bible, that it is the word of God. And it's also important for us to be able to respond to those kinds of things when they come our way. So that's my objective today, to uh, take a look at the scriptures and to see for ourselves how they are indeed God's word. Uh, John Stott had a great uh, paragraph. I want to start off with that in uh, reference to Ephesians 2.20. Here where Paul says that the church has been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. He said, in practical terms, this means that the church is built on the New Testament scriptures. They are the church's foundation documents. And just as a foundation cannot be tampered with once it has been laid and the superstructure is being built upon it, so the New Testament foundation of the church is inviolable and cannot be changed by any additions, subtractions, or modifications. The church stands or falls by its loyal dependence on the foundation truths which God revealed to his apostles and prophets and which are now preserved for us in the New Testament scriptures. That's what the apostle is referring to here. We have this foundation of the scriptures. And although he's referring primarily to the New Testament scriptures, we can include the entirety of scripture here because the apostles obviously and the prophets, they drew from the Old Testament. So it is our belief as Christians that the Bible alone is God's special revelation to man. Only the Bible. There are other books. uh, There are other groups, obviously. There are other religions, and they claim... Uh, biblical in, or they claim divine inspiration for their writings, but we as Christians believe that the Bible alone is God's special revelation to man, and that it is inspired and inerrant and authoritative. And so we want to look at 
each one of these things, beginning with the inspiration of Scripture. So when we say that the Bible is inspired, and of course the Bible uh, says that regarding itself, First uh, Timothy, Second uh, Timothy, excuse me, three sixteen, Paul says, "For all Scripture is given by inspiration of God." Now, when we're talking about inspired, we don't mean simply that the Bible is inspiring. Now, the Bible is inspiring. You, you read the scriptures and you definitely get inspired. But when we say uh, we believe in, in biblical inspiration, that's not what we're talking about. Uh, nor do we mean that the Bible is inspired in a similar way to uh, how a great poet or a composer might be inspired. And we think of poetry or uh, musical composition, you think, wow, that you know, that person was inspired. They might even say, I just felt this burst of inspiration and that's how this poem came forth. Well, we're not talking about that because that's originating within the person. When we're talking about inspiration in the biblical sense, what we mean is that the writers of scripture were controlled by the Holy Spirit in such a way that they wrote not their own thoughts, but God's thoughts. Not even their own words, but God's words. Peter put it beautifully. He said, for prophecy, and here he's using prophecy uh, to speak just of scripture in general, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved or carried along by the Holy Spirit. So here's one of those passages in scripture that, that tell us that uh, the, the scriptures, prophecy did not come by the will of man, but holy men were moved. Uh, Paul, when he says all scripture is given by inspiration of God in Second Timothy there, literally it's all scripture is God breathed. And so the idea that, that God breathed on the author. So even though they wrote uh, with their own pens and to some degree, their own experiences and personalities and things were part of this process, what they communicated to us was not their own thoughts, but they were the very thoughts of God in the very words that God would have them communicated. That's what we believe when we talk about uh, the Bible being the inspired word of God. Now, being the inspired word of God, if this book is indeed inspired by God, then we would also uh, have to conclude that it is inerrant. The word inerrant simply means without error. So there are no errors in the Bible. There are no um, mistakes uh, historically or uh, spiritually or morally or even geographically or, or scientifically. The Bible is inerrant. It w is without error. And so uh, a definition of inerrancy is that when all the facts are known, the Bible will prove itself to be without error in all matters that it covers, not only matters theological and moral, but also matters historical, geographical, and scientific. The inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. See, there are some people that will say, now look, the Bible's okay when it comes to theological things, that's what you use it for, but you can't trust it historically, you can't trust it scientifically, uh, that simply isn't true. When we talk about inerrancy, we're saying that the Bible is uh, without error in every area. There, there are no places where the Bible contains error. 
That is the traditional understanding of inerrancy. It's important to understand the traditional meaning of inerrancy because a new generation of scholars have arisen in evangelicalism. Evangelicalism is the body of Christians that uh, are supposed to believe the Bible is the word of God. But there's a new generation of scholars that have arisen in evangelicalism claiming that you can have myths, legends, and embellishments in the biblical text and this doesn't affect inerrancy. They say, oh, we still believe in inerrancy, but we also believe that the Bible includes certain myths and legends, and there were times when the authors uh, embellished things to make the story more exciting or you know, maybe more believable or something like that. Let me give you a few examples of what some of these men are saying. Uh, when Matthew stated in uh, the 27th chapter of his gospel that the dead saints were raised after the resurrection of Jesus and seen walking in the streets of Jerusalem, uh, they, they say that, that Matthew inserted this for effect. Uh, this didn't actually happen, but it just made the story better. And so uh, he decided to include that. Uh, they say that when Jesus told Peter in regard to taxes, uh, Go down to the lake, cast in your line, catch a fish. When you pull the fish out, it'll have a coin in its mouth. Take that coin and pay both your taxes and mine. Uh, they say, oh, no, that, that didn't really happen. That's a myth that was just inserted into there. Um, that was just helped, again, uh, enhance the story. Uh, they would say that the reference by Jesus to Jonah being three days and three nights in the heart or in the belly of the great fish, they would say, well, that doesn't mean that that necessarily really happened. It was just, it was a story that was part of the culture, and it was uh, a myth that was part of the culture, but everybody knew it, so Jesus just used it as a reference point. He didn't really believe that Jonah uh, spent three days and three nights in the heart of a fish. And there are many other places where they would do similar things. So here's the question. How is this reasoning justified? How do, how do they justify this? Because they're claiming to be conservative evangelical scholars. They're claiming to believe the scriptures. And I would say that they, that, that claim's valid. I think they do believe the scriptures. But yet they're also uh, saying that the scriptures have myths and legends and um, embellishments. So how do they come to this? Well, this is how they've come to it. I'll just quote to you from one uh, well-known author in that camp. He said, the gospels belong to the genre of Greco-Roman biography. Bios, Greco-Roman biography, offered the ancient biographer great flexibility for rearranging material and inventing speeches and often included legend. Because Bios was a flexible genre, it is often difficult to determine where history ends and legend begins. So how is it that these guys come to this position? They come to this position because they say, well, uh, the New Testament is, is it's like Greco-Roman biography. It's a certain genre of writing. And in that genre, this is what they did. So the New Testament writers, they just did what everybody else did at the time. And just like these uh, others 
uh, at the time would bring in legends and myths and they would feel free to embellish. So the New Testament writers did that as well. So they're, they're using this, um, th- this genre idea to support their position. But you can argue in many ways against their position. First of all, you can argue against the idea that the Romans are uh, of the genre of the Greco-Roman biography because uh, the New Testament documents were written by Jews and they have much more similarity to the Old Testament text than they do to the Greco-Roman biography. So you, I think you could build a good argument against their theory there. But, but also this is, this is just simply a theory that they have. And in the academic world, there's, there's strong pressure in the academic world to conform to academia, to conform to what people are saying in the intellectual community. And in the academic community, there is strong opposition and always has been to the miraculous aspects of the Bible. And so they have, um, from the very beginning of the attack upon the Bible, they've always sought to undermine the portions of Scripture that speak of the, the obviously miraculous things. And, and in the end, uh, this is what they say. They say, well, you have to know the author's intent. You can't really take what they said at face value. You've got to know what they were thinking. Now, how in the world are you gonna know what the author was thinking unless he communicated what he was thinking? And so the question that you ask them is, okay, well, how do you decide in the end? Uh, it, it's, di- it's difficult to determine where history ends and legend begins. How do you decide where, where history does end and legend begins, if that's the case? And you know how they decide? They basically decide on things that they think should be there and things that they don't think should be there. So this story about the dead saints rising and walking around the streets of Jerusalem, that just seems way too weird. So we're going to say that that was a myth. On what basis? We just think it would be a myth because it's too weird for us. Now, I'm sorry, but I'm not going to take that as a valid argument. You know, I've written a few books and, um, you know, the intent of the author, you know what I do as an author? I, I want to communicate what, what I, you know, my intention is what I wrote in the book. Why write a book if you, if you don't uh, express your intentions? That's the whole point. You want people to get what you're thinking or saying. The Bible uh, means what it says, and it says what it means, and we can have absolute confidence in that. So we completely reject this idea of um, the Gospels and the, and the New Testament text being of this genre of the Greco-Roman biography, and therefore we you know, we just accept the fact that there are these embellishments and myths and so forth. No, we believe that as weird as it is that the dead saints were walking the streets of Jerusalem, that's what they were doing. But is that any more weird than Lazarus being raised from a tomb by Jesus? Is it any more weird than Jesus himself rising from the dead? The thing that I find so ironic is the person who uh, kind of promoted this idea that the, the resurrection of the saints Uh, was mythological. This guy wrote a 700-page book on the resurrection of Jesus, a very convincing book, a good book, and then he ruined it by putting this in because the question then could easily be asked, well, look, if this is a myth, then why isn't your account of the resurrection of Jesus a myth? What's the difference? So this is not belief in inerrancy. If someone says, well, I believe 
the Bible is without error, but it does have falsehoods in it. It does have myths and legends and embellishments. Then that person doesn't believe in inerrancy. But we believe that the Bible is inerrant, meaning once again that when all the facts are known, the scriptures will be shown to be wholly true in everything they affirm, whether that has to do with doctrine or morality or with social, physical, or life sciences. You see, it's not just, oh, well, the Bible's fine when it comes to spiritual things, but we can't trust it historically, geographically, scientifically. If you can't trust it to speak to you about the things on earth, how can you trust it to speak to you about the things in heaven? So we believe in an inerrant scripture, and that leads us logically to believing in the authority of scripture. If I believe that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant word of God, then I am going to believe in its authority. And the church collectively is under the authority of scripture. We as individual Christians are under the authority of scripture, meaning that the Bible is the final word for faith and practice for us as God's people. So we are under the authority of scripture. The church is built on the foundation of the scriptures. We are submitted to the authority of the word. And wherever in history the church has been submitted to the authority of the word, the church has done well. The church has prospered in the spiritual sense and been blessed and and been powerful and impacted the world. Wherever the church has come out from under the authority of scripture, in other words, saying, well, you know, I don't believe that the Bible really is totally the word of God. These uh, ideas that we're talking about here, wherever that's happened, the church has gone south every single time. And so we believe in the authority of scripture. We believe in the Bible's claim to inspiration. Let me quote to you, I've alluded to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Let me quote it. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, or as I said, uh, God breathed, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So this is what we believe as Christians. We believe in the inspiration of scripture. But some people would say, well, that's just circular reasoning. You're using the Bible to support your argument. You're using just because the Bible says it's inspired, you're saying, well, the Bible says it's inspired, therefore it's inspired. But it's not really like that. You see, because the Bible does make the claim to inspiration, but the claim itself is not sufficient, really, is it? There's, there's got to be some evidence that, that there really is inspiration. A person can claim anything, but is there proof behind the claim? But you see, the Bible, the beautiful thing about the scripture is it doesn't just make that statement, the Bible is inspired, period. Don't ask any questions. Don't research it. Don't try to find out if it's true. Just accept it. That's how the Quran is. But the Bible's not like that. The Bible tells us that it's inspired, but then we have many infallible proofs to support that claim. And so that's what we want to do. Uh, in the remainder of our time. I want to show you the proofs for, informa- uh, for inspiration. So we'll get to the proofs lastly, but uh, because there's, uh, 
God has built into the Bible proof of its inspiration. That's the beautiful thing about it. He's built it right into the text itself. But before we look at the proofs, let's look at the arguments. And there are many, but I'm just going to uh, give you four arguments in, sport, in support of the divine inspiration of Scripture. So these arguments that I'm going to present right now, they do not prove inspiration, but I think they bolster the case. They lend support to the argument. So the first is the indestructibility of the Bible. Do you know that the Bible, like no other book in history, um, there, there have been more attempts to destroy the scriptures than any other book ever, and far beyond any other book. More attempts by emperors and kings and rulers and political parties and uh, so forth, all, all the way back to biblical times right up to uh, the, the current uh, time that we're living in. It's a very small number of books that remain in circulation for 100 years. If you find a book that was written over 100 years ago today that's, that's still being sold, that's a rarity. But to find books that survive uh, for 1,000 years, that is minute. The number of those are minute. Now, uh, there are some. You can, you can find some today. There, there still are a few. But none of them have ever had the kind of opposition to them like the Bible has. Now, you could go to Barnes & Noble after church today, and you could pick up a book. Um, you could pick up Homer's Iliad. Uh, you could pick up the writings of Plato or Aristotle. Uh, you could pick up the writings of Augustine. Um, so those books have survived more than a 1,000 years, but there was no great effort to wipe those books out. There was never a time when an emperor said, we've got to get rid of the Iliad, Homer's Iliad. We've got to destroy that. We've got to find all the copies and burn them. Uh, but that's exactly what the Roman emperors did with the Christian scriptures. So here's the amazing thing about the Bible. It is today in the 21st century the most distributed and the best-selling book of all time. It remains. Year after year, the Bible is the number one bestseller, and that just goes on and on and on, and it not just being sold, but distributed and, and sought after. So the indestructibility of Scripture, the, the many efforts to destroy the Scriptures have failed. I think that that's a, a significant argument in favor of biblical inspiration, although it doesn't prove it. But there's also the historical veracity of the Bible. The historical veracity. In other words, that the Bible is accurate historically. Now, this, uh, many intellectuals, many uh, scholars over the years have uh, come against this idea and said that the Bible is full of historical errors. And... Many, many attempts have been made over the past couple of hundred years, especially, to uh, disprove the scriptures and to show that they were historically inaccurate. But as a Time Magazine article said some years ago, after more than two centuries of facing the heaviest scientific guns that could be brought to bear, the Bible has survived and is perhaps better for the siege. Even on the critics' own terms, 
historical fact, the scriptures seem more acceptable now than they did when the rationalists began their attack. You know, there were uh, all of these kinds of things that came out like, uh, oh, the Bible mentions people that never existed, places that never existed, peoples that never existed. And, uh, you know, these were the claims and uh, the academic world, of course, bought into it and supported it and promoted it. And oftentimes many just average Christians uh, were duped by it and some lost their faith over it. Uh, But all of these things have been refuted. You know, they said there was no such thing as Pontius Pilate. It didn't exist. And then they discovered a stone with Pontius Pilate's name written on it uh, right in the very area where he was the governor. Uh, They said that there was no nation of the Hittites. That was a fictitious nation that the Bible writers just made up as part of their mythology. Then they found the great empire of the Hittites. They said uh, Moses could never have written the, the books that are attributed to him because there was no writing at the time of Moses, they said. And lo and behold, they found a massive library that uh, predated Moses by uh, 600 years at least, going back to the time of Abraham. And so these are the kinds of things. And as the article here, quoting from Time Magazine, says that um, even on the critics' own terms, historical fact, the scriptures seem more acceptable now than they did when the rationalists began their attack. So there is not one... There is not one uh, thing in the Bible that anybody has ever proven to be wrong historically. All kinds of theories about why this, you know, couldn't be the case, but no one's ever proven anything. And archaeology has largely disproved all of those arguments that they brought forth. So there's the historical veracity of the Bible, but there's also the scientific reliability of the Bible. Now, the Bible is not a science book, and aren't you glad for that? Because just think if you had to read a science book every night to get your faith strengthened. I mean, that would be like hell. That would be absolute (laughs) torment to have to read equations and things like that. No, it's not a science book. That's not its intention. But... No scientific observation in the Bible contradicts known scientific evidence. That's a fact. Every other ancient religion had certain unscientific views of astronomy, medicine, hygiene, and a number of other things. But the Bible is absolutely free from those scientific absurdities that were common among the other religions. Now, again, the Bible's not a science book, so it doesn't lay things out scientifically necessarily. But when the scientific age came and they began to discover certain things, they discovered things that the Bible had already stated to be the case thousands of years before. For example, 3,500 years ago, Moses said, the life of all flesh is in the blood. Moses said that 3,500 years ago. The life of all flesh is in the blood. Scientists discovered that in the 17th century. 3,000 years ago, David said that the sun is moving in a circuit through the heavens. We read that in the 19th Psalm this morning. Astronomers discovered that in the early 1900s. They didn't realize that the sun had its own orbit. 2,000 years ago, Paul spoke of creation being in the bondage of decay. We call that today the second law of thermodynamics, which was understood in 1850. So you see, there's, there's no scientific discovery 
that's ever contradicted what the scriptures say. And the scriptures uh, anticipate it centuries before, millennium before, they anticipated scientific discoveries that would come later. And so fourthly, and finally here, the unity of the Bible is another strong uh, support uh, or strong argument in support of the claim uh, for biblical inspiration. The unity of the Bible. This one's pretty fascinating if you, if you really think about it. Now, the Bible, the Bible's one book, right? And when you, when you read the Bible, if you've read through the Bible, you know that, you know, this is, this is one book, but it's made up of 66 books. But it's not only made up of 66 books, it was written by over 40 different authors at different times over a, approximately a 2,000-year period. 40 different authors on three different continents in three different languages spread out over a close to 2,000 year period, and yet it's one book. When you read the Bible, it's clear it's one book. It has one doctrinal system, one moral standard, one plan of salvation, one program of the ages. There's nothing like this anywhere ever in history. And really, the unity of the scriptures is, in a sense, it's I mean, to me, it's almost miraculous. If you took 10 North American scholars today and you, um, they all spoke the same language, they all spoke the common English language, and you gave them 10 controversial topics to write on, uh, what, what do you think you would end up with? I, I guarantee you would not end up with a, a harmonious um, Result, You wouldn't end up with uh, a consistency. You know, oh yeah, this is one book, although it was compiled by 10 different authors. No, you'd have so many different opinions. But this almost miraculous unity of the Bible. So the unity of the scripture, uh, the scientific reliability of the Bible, the historical veracity of the Bible, and the indestructibility of the Bible. These are just a few things. There's, there's more. We don't have time to go on with it. But these are just a few things that support the biblical claim to inspiration. But I want to come now finally to the proof of the Bible's claim to be the word of God. What is the proof? Well, God built proof into the biblical text for us. And the proof that the Bible is the word of God is predictive prophecy. The Bible tells the future with 100% accuracy. There's nothing like it. There's no other book uh, there's no person that's ever lived, you know, most uh, recently, probably the most famous name that we've known is Nostradamus, you know, that he supposedly predicted history so accurately, or the Mayans predicted history so accurately, or whatever. But we've seen over and over again that that isn't true. But the Bible, um, the predictions in the Bible have come to pass with 100% accuracy. But this is what God declared in Isaiah 46. He said, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. The challenge that God put forth in the days of Isaiah to the gods of the nations, the false gods that the other nations were worshiping, the challenge was, tell me the future. You say you're gods, 
Tell us what's going to happen, and then we'll know that you're God's. But the Lord declared, no, you can't do that. That's something that God reserved for himself to be able to predict the future. And the Bible is a book full of predictive prophecy. And we have a general idea, even today, we have a general idea of where things are going in the future. And we see things around us that are developing just as the Bible 2,000 years ago, at least, said that they would. But let's look at a few things. There's prophecy concerning the Jews. Many, many prophecies all throughout the scripture concerning the Jews, concerning uh, the fact that they would get carried off to uh, Babylon, for example, prophecies there. The fact that they would be uh, carried off by another nation, which would end up being the Romans. The fact that they would be brought back into their homeland after many, many centuries of being dispersed and that they would have a major role at the end of the world. Uh, Jerusalem being the burdensome stone to all the nations. That's where we're at today. But Jesus, in Luke 21, listen to what he said. He said, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. For these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. For there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Jesus spoke these words in approximately 32 AD. 38 years later, exactly what he said would happen did happen. And nobody at the time could have ever imagined that that would have been the case. In the same context, they were the disciples with Jesus, they were looking at the magnificent temple that Herod had built, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and they were admiring it. And Jesus said, as they're looking at that, he said, you know what? Not one stone is going to be left upon another here. They couldn't believe it. What do you mean? How could this thing even be torn down? That didn't seem possible. And even at the time, politically, uh, the Jews had compromised with the Romans and they lived in, in relative harmony. So there was nothing to indicate at the time that Jesus uttered these words that the destruction of Jerusalem was just 38 years away, but it was. So predictive prophecy. But predictive prophecy, much of it, if not the majority of it, has to do with the Messiah. Hundreds of messianic prophecies are given in the Bible And these messianic prophecies have been fulfilled by Jesus. You know, Jesus didn't just come as this person that just showed up in history, said, I'm the son of God, worship me. Some people think that. You go, well, why should we believe that Jesus is the son of God? He just showed up and said he was, and everybody says, yeah, he's the son of God. No, it didn't happen that way. Hundreds of predictions preceded his arrival, going back hundreds and even thousands of years. That's what was happening. So we have to realize that these, uh, these prophecies, they're the built-in evidence. Now, it is mathematically impossible that these things could have been predicted and fulfilled coincidentally. Now, they say that some 300 prophecies were fulfilled by Jesus during his first coming. But let's just take 100. If we take 100, what is the likelihood that uh, one person could come along and by coincidence uh, fulfill just 100 of these prophecies. How likely is that? Well, Dr. Charles Ryrie said, according to the laws of chance, it would require 200 billion earths 
populated with four billion people each to come up with one person whose life could fulfill 100 prophecies accurately without any errors in sequence. Yet the scriptures record not 100, but over 300 prophecies that were fulfilled in Christ first coming alone. So you see the, the, you know, the, the probability that it was just a coincidence that this guy, Jesus, showed up and fulfilled these prophecies, it's, um, it's not possible that that could have happened. Mathematically, it's impossible. Pastor Chuck used to use the illustration from Peter Stoner uh, to illustrate the number uh, one uh, in 10 to the 17th power would be like uh, taking the, the state of Texas and filling it three feet deep. You remember that illustration with uh, silver dollars. You mark one of the silver dollars. You get a giant mixer. You mix them all up. And then you take a guy and you blindfold him and you spin him around and get him real dizzy. Then you send him out you know, to find the, the, the marked coin. And the chance that he would pick up the right coin on the first try is the chance that somebody could come along and fulfill, uh, by coincidence, the prophecy. And that was only with 10 to the 17th power. And that was based upon a smaller number of, of prophecies. But the larger the number of prophecies, the, the greater the number, uh, the probability became. And I think they took it out to 10, 1 in 10 to the 48th power. And that's probably the number that Ryrie is using here, where you've got uh, these um, multitude, uh, you know, 200 billion earths and so forth. Pastor Chuck used to illustrate it with the, um, trying to use the illustration of the atom and so forth. But the point is obvious that Jesus came and fulfilled literally exactly the prophecies that were given. The prophecies about his um, ancestry of the tribe of Judah, uh, belonging to the family of David, born in the city of Bethlehem, uh, born of a virgin, coming at just a, a very specific time in history before the destruction of the second temple, uh, betrayed by a friend, rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, hailed as king, crucified, uh, nails pierced, hands and feet, put in the, the, a rich man's tomb, risen from the dead. The, these are the things. They all were predicted and Jesus fulfilled them exactly. So you see, it's prophecy. That's the built-in proof. How do we know that this book, the Bible, is God's word? Because he built in proof. He told us the future. He told us what was going to happen. And it has happened just as he said with the Jews. It's happened just as he said with Jesus. And we see it developing, that it's happening just as he said toward the end of time. We're seeing the world, everything coming uh, together just the way the scriptures said that they would. And so you can have absolute confidence that this book is God's word. It is inspired by God. It is without error and it is authoritative. It is what we are submitted to. And we need to know that for ourselves because there's, like I said, there's a constant attack against the authority of scripture. Uh, but we need to know that also to be able to help other people. We need to know it to be able to uh, defend the faith, give a defense. There's a huge attack today against the Bible because of what it teaches. And people don't like what it teaches, so they try to discredit it. Say, well, it can't be God's word. So we have 
both the personal need to know it's God's word and we have the personal responsibility to be able to speak to others and to contend with them for the faith, showing that this is indeed the word of God. So in closing, I want to quote to you from the the Prince of Preachers, Charles H. Spurgeon, and, and listen to what Spurgeon said. And this is not hyperbole on his part, because this is the heart of this man, Spurgeon. If you've ever read him, you know that this is absolutely exactly how he felt, and I agree with him. He said, if you wish to know God, you must know his word. If you wish to perceive his power, you must see how he works by his word. I hold one single sentence out of God's word to be of more certainty and of more power than all the discoveries of all the learned men of all ages. I would rather speak five words out of this book than 50,000 words of the philosophers. Remember that our Bible is a blood-stained book. The blood of the martyrs, the translators, and the confessors is on the Bible. The doctrines we preach are doctrines that have been baptized in blood. Listen to what he says finally. If the whole of us went to prison and to death for the preservation of one single sentence of scripture, we should be fully satisfied in making such a sacrifice. That's not hyperbole. Spurgeon believed that absolutely. And it's true. It's true. Five words are of more value than 50,000 words of the philosophers. This is God's word. And we can bet our lives on it. We can stake our lives on it. And all of the attempts by men to refute it and to deny the historicity and all of those different things, they've all continued to fail and they will continue to fail because God has spoken. And we have it right here in the pages of the scripture. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And we can entrust ourselves to the authority of the word and have absolute confidence that it's going to carry us through life and it's going to bring us through even death itself. Thank you, Lord, for your word. And thank you for all of the different things that point to the truth of the Bible being your divinely inspired word. Thank you that we can have that as a foundation for our lives in a world that is so unstable, a world that is being shaken day in and day out. Yet, Lord, we have this firm foundation of your word under our feet. We thank you so much for that. And Lord, increase our faith. Give us a greater appetite for the word. Give us a greater understanding, a deeper conviction. And Lord, also, would you use us to build uh, faith in others and to encourage others that they can trust your word. So we thank you for it today. We thank you for those that gave their lives to transmit it, to get it into our hands today. Thank you, Lord, that we have a Bible, that we can freely read it and publicly proclaim it and gather together and study it. Lord, we take these things for granted, but forgive us for doing so because we know that even today it's not true with many people. 
And over the long history of the church, it's been not always the case. Lord, thank you for these great freedoms and help us to take advantage of every moment to saturate our lives in your living word, the truth, the eternal truth of God. In Jesus' name, amen.